This program is brought to you by the Gin Society, www.ginsociety.com. On the show today, my three guests across sport, music and business, Brett Lee, the world's fastest bowler, he happens to be my younger brother as well, Bollywood star and musician, bass player in the band Six and Out. Secondly, Chris Thomas, record producer to the stars, Beatles, Pink Floyd, Roxy Music, Elton John, The Pretenders, In Excess, Pete Townsend, The Sex Pistols, to name a few. And thirdly, Tim Farris, the oldest brother in the band In Excess, one of the great rock and roll bands of our generation. So join myself, Brett, Tim and Chris on Lunch With Lee. All right, boys, I think we'll, we'll kick off. Firstly, welcome, Brett, Tim, and Chris. Uh, this is the inaugural Lunch with Lee podcast. My three guests, to my immediate left here, my brother, Brett Lee. Um, Thank you, mate. My second brother, older brother of Grant, Bollywood star, number one, <laughs> number, number one hits in India, and Timmy Farris, the, the oldest Farris brother from the Thanks for mentioning the that. great rock band <laughs> In Excess, and Chris Thomas. Now, Chris, I'm just looking at a few of your highlights here, the Beatles, Pink Floyd, Roxy Music, Elton John, Pretenders, Pete Townsend, Sex Pistols. And In Excess. Yeah, I was going to say. And In Excess, yes. And uh, so, boys, thanks for coming. My whole idea about this podcast was getting some good mates together over lunch, sitting around and talking about sport, music and business, my my three passions in life. I read a book, 10,000 Hours, How to Become an Expert, and apart from cricket, lunch was the other thing I'd done 10,000 <laughs> 10, hours at. So, I can vouch for that. Yeah. So, so here we are. We'll be ordering lunch over the course of the afternoon and uh, having a few drinks and just sharing stories over sharing a meal. So uh, firstly, welcome. Chris, how, how long are you in town for? Um, I've got about another two weeks. I've been here quite a long time now. I first came out to Melbourne about, what was it, 28th uh, December. So it's going to be about 11 weeks altogether. And you obviously come out for the cricket. You love the... I come out for cricket, not that there's been any. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also, I think primarily because I absolutely love Australia, I sort of toyed with the idea of coming out here sort of permanently. But then it seemed as though when I was working, it was like, you know, it might have been a bit difficult to sort of get around. But yeah, I just love Australia to death. And I mean, I just hope I can always come out here every year. And Timmy, you're, you're, you were president of Manly Cricket Club once yeah. stage, yeah. For a few years there, yeah. That was a, a lot of fun and uh, a little more than I bargained for. Um, <laughs> sure. But it was great. It was really, really interesting to see it at the roots level. And that was back before T20 cricket, I guess, which for me has somewhat changed things. Yes, big time. Remarkably. Um, and for mine, personally, I, you know, I just can't get into the BBL. So when that's all there is to watch, I sit around waiting for the NRL session to start. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. That's what. That's just the way it is for me. Look, I, I'm super excited to have you three guests on as my first three guests for this show because Brett and I grew up mum playing the mm. piano at home. So musical family. I remember you three being at my farm in Kangaroo Valley. And, yeah, I, and, I, yeah. and I want to apologise now for crashing your <laughs> <Yes>. motorbike. <laughs> into, into a fence post. I'll never what, forget What actually it. happened there? And that was just when you were called up to play. You could too. stop the bloody thing. I just, <laughs> first time on a, on a motorbike yeah. and Timmy's like, yeah, go for it. And I just jumped off and this thing just hammered into the fence pole. You your career there and then. Mm. Yeah, I was worrying more about the motorbike, but... No, I wasn't worried about the motorbike. We should see what I do with them. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was 987. I remember getting a CD player for Christmas for the first time, and the first album I got was Kick. 
Chris produced and Chris produced, yeah. So we've come full circle here, which is which is quite yeah. exciting, yeah. Great album too. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> that's great work on it. <laughs> and Timmy, how are you going, mate? These days, mate, with the the finger injury. Yeah, that's it's been, been, been tough, mate. Yeah, it's been probably the uh, second biggest tragedy of you know my professional career was um it was a horrific event you know i was here i was grappling with a an anchor on the front of a a rather large boat i must say and just my wife beth was on the flybridge you know with the boat idling and i was trying to get the chain in the winch stopped working started working stopped working i couldn't budget with my hands you know like it was a it was all chain and all of a sudden the thing started and just dragged my hand in and it was stuck in there, and I don't know how, but somehow I had this strength that came from nowhere. I just, with one arm, reached out, grabbed the chain, and pulled the boat about 10 feet into a 35-knot southerly and freed my hand, and oh. there was my finger lying on the deck of the boat. Oh, no. And uh, Beth was couldn't see what was going on, so she says, Tim, what's happening? And I went, oh, nothing, I've just lost my finger. Uh, you know, <laughs> just, there was this little bit of bone sticking out of this oh. knuckle here, and that was that. So, which know? finger was it? Your ring finger? It was finger? my ring finger, yeah. Right. So, it's now reconstructed around a metal rod. doesn't bend. Uh, it feels like, you know, when you put your tongue on a nine volt battery, yep. it's permanently like that. Gotcha. Um, and actually came off. Oh, yeah, yeah. The finger was right, right so off. Seven, yeah, yeah. Attached. 16 hours of surgery. I've, I've had a few mates first. try to cut that, that finger off, that ring finger <laughs> off over the years for different, very different reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Can you use it for pulling it? Well, that's, that's Kirk's domain, though. Oh, okay. So, oh, you know, right. I don't want to be second slide. No. You okay. know. Okay. Um, but that, that is an option. Yeah. And Chris, I want to obviously want to talk about your, I'm a bit of a music nut myself, but um, you told me a story once about the first time. Being in the uh, studio with the, with the Beatles, mm. Abbey Road. Mm. Do you want to maybe just tell a bit of that story? What sort of how I got, sort of got involved yes, with them? Yeah. Okay, well, I was actually on a kind of six month trial with George Martin. He very kindly answered. I wrote a letter to him saying how much I wanted to be a producer, and uh, somehow it came about that he'd already started his own independent company called AIR. Associated in Independent Recordings, which went on to become Air London and build the studio. But, so anyway, so that was the setup. Um, so I wasn't employed by EMI. And also I wasn't an engineer, I was a musician. And I was going in to be a producer from that side of it. And I started going down. There's some other guys as well. There were people like Ron Richards who produced the Hollies. So I went down a lot of Hollies sessions. So I, I saw a fair bit of stuff. Then I went down when they started working on the White Album which they started about the end of May 68. And this went on for months and months. And originally, I went down to every single session. I mean, you couldn't keep me away from there. But mm. bit by bit, it kind of slowed down. And it got to... I went away on holiday. And around about end of August, something like that, came back beginning of September. And there was a note on my desk from George saying, I hope you had a nice holiday. I'm off on mine now. Uh, make yourself available to the Beatles. You know, Neil and Mal know you're coming down with the two roaders. So I thought, well, it's the same deal. You know, sit in the corner of the control room. I used to have to wear a suit and a tie and say <laughs> nothing. You know, boot to a goose. You know, just sort of sit there. And so there I was. And obviously George had... You know, this record had been going on and on and on and on forever. Normally, he would have thought that it would be over by, say, the end of July. And he'd booked up his holiday with his family for months and months before they even started the, the album. So, um, so that's, that's why he went away. But first one through the door that day was Paul. Now, they were really having a lot of 
they were having a hard time because they were having to manage themselves because Epstein had died the year before. So he'd probably been at a business meeting or something and happened. Let's just say that maybe he wasn't in the best mood. But I mean, I don't know. I can say that now, reflecting on it. But at the time, I didn't know what was going on. And he happened to just walk in and he saw me sitting there on my own in the corner. And he said, what are you doing here? And I, mean, <laughs> um, I, I said, surely, I said, didn't George say something about, you know, permission for me to carry on coming down? And he said, oh, if you want to produce this, you can produce this. If you're no good, we'll just tell you to fuck off. <laughs> I walked down the stairs into the studio, which Thomas left me totally and utterly catatonic. Mm. I didn't say, I couldn't speak. And they all, they, they all arrived one by one, and they went down there into the studio, and they started working. So I kind of plumped myself next to Ken Scott, who was engineering. And they just, com- they just communicated with Ken the whole time. It was just almost, like, you Ken, like I wasn't there. Oh, wow. you know, so this was just getting more and more and more horrible. Um, they had a break after about five hours where they, had, they always used to have a little kind of meeting about, what, you know, this kind of another business meeting about seven in the evening and uh, recharge the batteries. <laughs> and after, actually, it was during that, I was downstairs in the studio and I heard John say something about, oh, he's not really doing his bit, is he? And I thought he was talking about me. So I went back upstairs and I thought, oh, my God. I mean, like, you know, if they told me, you know, that's it, don't yeah. come back. When George comes back from holiday, I'm five months into a six-month trial. That's it. That's the end of my life. You're gone. Absolutely. I'm gone. So they were playing, and uh, all of a sudden somebody made a mistake, say the beginning of the second verse, so I interrupted them, and I said, try it from the top. I said, it went wrong at the beginning of the second verse. Now, George would never have interrupted them if they were doing a take, if something went wrong. But I didn't. I just thought I don't care who they are. <laughs> I've got. To, I've got. To keep You're in enough here. trouble anyway. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Where to go out in flames? So they. Yeah. So they all dropped their instruments and they all came up the stairs oh. to listen to the mistake. I'm going. Oh no, no, no! What happens if I've kind of been brains phased and I've made it up? Anyway, they heard the mistake. They went back downstairs again. Started playing, and a bit later on. Um, similar thing happened, and I pressed the button, and I said, "Try it from the top." So they tried it from the top. And so last one out at about two in the morning was Paul. And I just said, uh, what about tomorrow? And he said, come down if you want. And walked out. <laughs> I mean, it's on my brain. Yeah. It was like I just won. Yeah. I just scored the winning, <laughs> winning goal at the World Cup. I couldn't believe it. And from there on, I, did, I started doing... I mean, I, I never said that I produced them. I mean, I, you know. But they started using me on bits and pieces, on playing a lot of things. Yeah. So I was on every single session then, right to the end of the White Album. And in the course of that time, towards the end, for instance, maybe... George Martin went into, I remember one night, into number three with uh, John Lennon to do some stuff, some edits on number nine. And I worked with George Harrison in number two, I think, on Savoy Truffle. Now, people have constructed that idea. They, they think, oh, well, so they weren't talking to each other. They weren't getting on because they were working in different studios. It wasn't. There was just so much work to do. Hmm. So that's, that's how that So, Timmy, as we said before, Chris produced Kick album. Here comes our menus, boys, so we'll order some some lunch as well while we're doing this. But tell me, what, what, what makes a good producer in music, in your opinion? Um, someone who's honest yep. um, and, you know, has a, a lot of experience, which Chris had. And he'd produced a lot of incredible music. In fact, I remember one time when we were recording Listen Like Thieves, and this was the first album we did with Chris, 
And he, we were all sitting in the control room at Rhinoceros and Chris says, um, what's your favourite albums, guys? You know, and um, when it came to me, I said, oh, For Your Pleasure by Roxy Music. And Chris goes, I produced that. <laughs> and I was like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and so I went home and got out the album. And not only does the producer, but his name's really big on the record. <laughs> and I was like, that's it, you know. Got him. Um, yeah, so then that was the album with Eno. And Chris has always had some funny stories about Eno, which, uh, that you know, that was it for me. I just thought, wow, this is incredible. You know, for every, in every home, a heartache or whatever it is. Mm, oh, <laughs> goodness, yeah. um, that was really my kind of thing. So, you know, it, Chris just had me at, you know, g'day. And and then, you know, Chris saw us live a lot, you know, okay. and, and he tried to create it recreate what we did live in the studio and which then led to us trying to create what we did in the studio live <laughs> which is an odd thing to go to, which you, you know, which you did which we ended up doing Brilliant. yeah yeah thank you um and so you know I, th- I think it's just having that um sensibility about understanding the individuals chris was very adamant that we all contribute song-wise and that our parts were really together mm. so that we all had distinct parts. And that made a lot of sense to me. You know, it's none, none of this noodling stuff so much as, well, if you did, you noodled and noodled and noodled until you had an actual part that was that, that then you repeated that. So everything was solid, you know. And, 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 and being a musician as well, Chris would be sitting there. We always had a guitar sitting in the control room and, and we'd all, Chris included, would be you know, just coming up with little melody things for little ideas here and there. And all those little things are, all contribute to the, the overall, you know, flavour. One, one of the interesting things, um, now I've got three kids, um, I often get asked a lot by the other school parents, you know, what makes a, you know, a good young cricketer or a good young sportsman or a good young musician? And obviously you can't answer the musician, although I played a guitar or held a guitar in six and out. But um, yeah. for, for my kids, there's three rules. Education is a non-negotiable. I want them to play a team sport at some stage because I think you learn a lot from playing in a team mm. sport, how to be part of a team, enjoying other success. And I want them to, to do an art because I don't want my kids just to be jocks at sport, you know, all blokey or, you know. Uh, especially the girls. Especially the girls, yeah. But, but also I don't want them to be too arty as well. So I want them to understand different people mm. across different mm. genres. And this is sort of what this whole Lunch with Lee podcast is about. And, and Brett, based on that, what do you think makes a, a, good, a good sportsman? Well, I think it comes down to uh, how much you actually want it. I remember, Work ethic, maybe? Yeah, well, it, to me, you know, you have to have some form of natural ability, uh, whether it's sport, music or business. But to me, it was always like that, that will to go harder than, any, than anybody else. So, for example, you know, mum and dad asked me when I was nine, they asked all three of us, myself, Shane and Grant, uh, what we wanted to be when we grew up. And I said, well, I want to bowl 160 Ks and wear the baggy green cap at nine. And whatever I did you know, moving forward was trying to achieve that goal and trying mm. to achieve that dream. So I was probably the, the least talented cricketer in the family, and I mean that. Wow. Shane always looked up to Shane as, a, you know, being the older brother but being probably the leader of the family in terms of the brothers. And then Grant, I think, had more talent than probably Shane and I put together. Really? Wow. But I, I think the reason why I got to go on and play test cricket because I wasn't the most talented but I had to, I had to work harder. And, and the hunger. Yeah, and I, I had so much hunger. So I had, you know, people tell me that I wouldn't be a fast bowler. I broke my back at the age of 16 and my doctor, who was an Indian doctor, a local Indian doctor, said, oh, you know, try something else because you won't be able to, you know, achieve 
your Drew being a fast bowler. He was just worried he'd get to 160. And I said, well, <laughs> and I said, well actually, mate, you know, I will play for Australia one day because that's what I've programmed my mm. brain to do. And when I do, I'll get you a ticket, which I did. And it was a 1999 Boxing Day test against Great. India. So he was pumped. <laughs> Good story. He was pumped. So mm. what I try and tell my kids, having having three kids, Preston, you know, 13, and Helena, four, and my son, Rafferty's eight months old, obviously as he gets older, but certainly with Preston, is, is just whatever you commit to doing, do it 100%. Mm. Don't don't be afraid of failing because failing is good as you know as long as you learn from what you've that's it you've missed out on or what you failed with or failed from have fun it's got to be fun enjoyable but also play to win you see so many kids and parents and they'll say I'll oh, just give it your best shot and that's fine but I think that if you do something you know you want to win mm. you've got to be a good loser you know appreciate when you do lose but you've also got to go out there to play to win so yeah have fun play to win and um Make sure you're training harder than most other kids. Um, Timmy, what was the dynamics like with the brothers in your family? Uh, it was good. I mean, we're all really different. Yeah. Probably John and I are more similar um, uh, than, say, Andrew and John or Andrew and I. Um, but being the eldest, you know, I always got my way. <laughs> so, <laughs> Same in ours, mate. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a right so, passage. So you'd, you'd have to ask them, actually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it was in many ways it was really good because we had this sort of natural communication anyway, and we we kind of I think it, somehow it it was infectious with the rest of the guy. I mean, look, Kirk was grew up with us as well. I mean, we all went to two high schools, so we really grew up together anyway. So and we remain really close, not just my brothers, but I mean mm. Kirk and Gary as well. So you know the. I don't know any different, so I can't really. I mean, I've never been in a band without my brothers, to be honest. Uh, yeah. Except maybe my, the very first band when we were in high school with Kirk. So it's it's difficult to say, but for me, I think it was a good thing. You know, we each had our own role. Yeah. I mean, apart from instrument wise, you know, we each had our own role in the band, and I think that that was an important dynamic for the band, not just as brothers. So I've read a few articles from the guys in excess, and and a lot of them mentioned that you were the sort of unannounced sort of leader of the whole of, of the well, group. I started that, it, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I've Which never is a big really, responsibility. Yeah, well, I've never really felt that. I've never really thought about myself being that. It's just been the way it is, you know. I, I mean, I guess because I started the band in, in a sense, you know. In fact, Kirk was the last to join, which was kind of weird being Kirk. But And he also, the thing about Kirk, which is really interesting, is he started to learn sax like when the band was already two or three years old. Yeah. Um, it is actually. It who, was really annoying. Because who actually named the band? I was living with him. <laughs> <laughs> who named the band, Timmy? Um, yeah. Anything. At least it wasn't violin. Yeah. Um, what was that? Who named the band? Um, Where the name came from? <laughs> Gary Morris, the uh, manager of Midnight Oil. You know, it came up with the idea and we, we liked it. But at that, we were called the Farris Brothers, which I actually now, in retrospect, you know, think was a good name. But but in excess is a great name too. It's it's very very, yeah, it's hard to say in Japanese, um, <laughs> and, and it doesn't work so well in Spanish. Um, but you know, they're the minor drawbacks, really. And Chris, do you have an older? Is it older sister? 
I've got a younger sister. A younger sister. So were you the oldest in your yeah. family as well? Yeah. 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 It's quite those dynamics in the uh, in the in the family as well. And what does your sister do? She she's a musician as well. No, she's not. She's not. But she did end up doing a short stint in the music business, working on you know in for a record company. Yep. Um, but she no, she wasn't particularly musical. She didn't really want to do anything. We might order some food now. Yeah, order some food. Yep. We do order some food and we'll turn it back on in a second. no secret, I love a gin. And one of our sponsors here, Lunch With Lee, is the Gin Society, which I happen to be a member of. When you sign up, they'll send you a full-size bottle of amazing craft gin delivered to your door every two months, plus the latest issue of their beautiful gin journal magazine and a surprise gift absolutely free. Each gin is sourced by a team of experts looking for exclusive, unique and exquisite drops from around the world. A subscription to the Gin Society is your passport to the world of craft gin. No strings attached. Cancel any time. Check out the website, www.ginsociety.com. Spartan Sports is recognised as one of the world's most exciting and innovative sporting brands with a community focus. Our product range across cricket, rugby, football, volleyball, basketball and fitness has been developed to sell directly to any club, school, corporate or individual. Go to our website and order directly to your front door, www.spartansports.com. Spartan Sports, unearth the warrior in you. So, boys, one of the things I've, I've discovered that the three of you all love fishing, different oh, ways. Yes. So, Timmy, I remember... You just have a, a Marlin guitar, didn't you, one yeah, stage? Yeah, still, I remember still that. Do, yeah. do you? Yeah, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah, Kramer made it for me. And Brett's, Brett's a mad fisherman. Brett just caught his largest kingfish, a metre 38. A metre so 38? He's, he's really? that, yeah. Wow. But, Chris, you have a an estuary in your, your backyard in Hampshire. Where it's got well, trout. I've got, I've, got, I've, got a, I've got a sea forming <laughs> at the bottom of my garden. At the moment. It's running, <clears throat> um, running through but, the but, yeah, I've got, I, I, yeah, I go trout fishing. I'm, I'm just the... The brook at the bottom of my garden feeds into the River Test, which is really, really well known for. So it's like a chalk stream. So it's very well known for for trout fishing. But uh, actually, going back to the, the mixture of music and um, and fishing was quite interesting when we were working. When I was working with Excess, because there was one point where I believe Tim had a little tinny, and you <laughs> bought, didn't you? You you caught a shark that was bigger than the oh, boat. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, it wasn't a tinny. It was a fiberglass. It was a fiberglass boat, and yes, it's a long story though, but I, I was fishing in a competition out of Port Stephens, the Interclub, and uh, we I was onto a tiger shark that ended up being uh, 360 kilo, and it was bigger than the boat, and when we got it, to, it took me hours, and it, the seas were really rough. Everyone else on the boat besides me was sick. Um, so probably why we got the shark in the first place, actually. <laughs> Good burn um, early. Yes. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it was like, so it was like a four-hour fight and in really rough seas. And then when we, the, the thing came up, um, it it nearly capsized the boat, and we ran out of fuel, and I and we had to try and find. We were way out of sight of land. Um, 
you know, something like 40 miles out. We had to get back. We, had, we were running out of fuel. We knew we weren't going to make it anywhere near shore or port. Uh, so we found another boat. And this is back in the day. I, I confess I killed that shark and I'm not very happy about it, but I did. Um, that was that really changed my whole uh, feeling towards killing fish altogether, actually. Right. Um, but I, in order to get that fish back to port, to weigh it, to enter it into the competition, I had to get it back to port and we weren't going to get ourselves back, let alone with this thing that was bigger than the boat. So we found another boat that would help us, but he, the seas were so rough, he wouldn't let us get within 50 metres of the other boat. So they were like, well, how are you going to get the shark over there? Well, one of you will have to swim with a no. rope around your waist, right? And, and I'm like, well, you guys are still burling and you got baits out, yeah. you know, and they go, yep, there's still time for us to – get a fish for the competition so and we're going to keep burling and you're going to have to swim through our burly trail and then oh, oh shark up and i'm like yeah right but and then we all saw a fin and yeah sure enough Jeez. and uh so i was like at that stage i was standing there in my undies with a rope around my waist thinking nah fuck this you know, that's i'm not gonna do Sunday, it and it? one of the guys <laughs> one of the guys on my back pushed me in so, <laughs> so I just swam like anything over to this big boat. It was heaving out of the out of the ocean. the The transom came belting down and hit me on the shoulder. I knocked my head on it. I was dazed and confused. I didn't know where I was, but I knew I was in shark infested waters in the wow. burly trail. Some big hand came down and pulled me out and onto the boat, and we got it. We got it back somehow, and I ended up winning the tournament. And Beautiful. you had the presence of mind of having this entire escapade filmed. <laughs> yes, that's so right. So then you came no, into I, the studio <laughs> right. on a Monday morning and showed it to your si- yeah. to me and also to your singer. <laughs> yeah. And your singer wasn't very happy about it. No, this. he wasn't at all. No, not at all. And Michael was, was very, very dark about it. Uh. <laughs> and Brett, what's fishing mean to you? I know you love it. Well, fishing means everything to me. Um, both my uncles, Uncle Bill and Uncle Les – who Uncle Les was a bit like a second dad to me and still is. He's a dad's uh, younger brother. So dad's one of three as well. And I remember going back to the age of about 10 or 11, I used to go fishing with them on the weekend and just got the fishing bug, fell in love with it. And ever since it's then... Like that, isn't it? Oh, it is. And yeah. it's, to me... It's almost it, something you can't explain. It is. It's, it's like, where did that come from? And, you, know? you know? And I actually enjoy fishing alone. It's nice to have some time away just mm. to think about other things and, and not worry about, you know, media and... Photos, all that type of stuff, or cricket. Uh, but yeah, I've had some of my best moments out there fishing, and I've had the pleasure to fish with a lot of different people from different walks of life too. But we had a moment uh, a few years ago, myself and Dominic Thornley, former New South Wales cricketer, and we're out about 40 mile off the coast, and we caught a, a southern bluefin tuna. Nice. A bit like you, Timmy, we had to somehow get it back in. Uh, it was two meters ten. Whoa. Dom hooked it up, and we had to get down to Watson's Bay, and they had to crane the, uh, the, they got the, the fish there. off the boat, so they craned it off. We did a bit of a side deal with one of the guys from the Japanese restaurant. We said, look, mate, if you cut the whole thing up, we'll give you half the fish. Oh, that's Which did come out with this knife. That's worth a mint. <laughs> yes. It's about a $20,000 fish. Yeah, absolutely. And we got, got it home, and I rang all my mates, texted all my mates, said, listen, fresh tuna at my house. Come around, mm. so you came around and got a big bag. Well, of Brett brought tuna. it all around. There was blood everywhere. I was going to call forensic. A little bit of murder. There was that much. Right. There was that much claret. I was talking about a burly yeah. trial. There would have been some sharks. Uh, uh, wow. Fishing uh, still is a very important part of my life. Well, a question I got for all of you: um, was, was there a distinct moment in your careers where you sort of 
paused and looked around and went, I've made it. I've got to where I thought I'd be. Timmy, was there a moment when you were standing on stage? Was it at Wembley or where, where was it? Or was it a smaller gig for you? Probably a smaller gig, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you know, Wembley was just fun, basically. Yep. Um, it, it was – it wasn't the – the biggest show we'd play, but it, being in England and in London and being able to sell it out weeks before the show, it just felt like a great achievement and before we even played. So when we went out there, I mean, Johnny started drumming to Guns in the Sky. Guns in the Sky was going to be the first song. I don't know why. It was just a really weird song to choose. <laughs> that whole set list was really strange, but it concentrated on the X album a lot, which looking back, there were so many great songs on that record and – the ones that we played live at Wembley, the, the versions were just fantastic, you know, and, and it, it just made me realise what a great record that was for us. So, you know, the, the version of The Stairs is probably that live version. Yeah. It's just we recreated the the studio version live and being live, it just had that magic. So John, Johnny goes out and starts drumming and we're all in the dressing room still, you know, it's like, fuck, he started. <laughs> <laughs> I was still smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like hell, you know. So we're all running out there, and and that's how casual we were, you know. So um, for me, uh, you know, I, I didn't really, I, I never got too retrospective or why I wasn't this great sort of thing and, until, I mean, I suppose getting the the platinum album in New York at the Rockefeller Center for Kick, I think it was, yeah, well. and there was like Andy Warhol there and all these people, you know, stars and whatnot, that that was kind of like I just wanted to get out of there, to be honest. Uh, it wasn't really <laughs> yeah. my bag. Um, but um, it, so I think, you know, like selling out the pubs in Australia meant more to me, funnily enough. Sure. Or before we were even in excess when we were opening for the Angels at the Narrowman Antler and we were the Farris Brothers and we got an encore, you know. That never wow. happens. That, that was – for me, a really great achievement. That's cool. And that led to Gary Morris discovering us and yep. Chris Murphy, and blah, which is <laughs> good or a bad thing, yep. depending which way you look at it, <laughs> um, and the rest of our career. So in a sense, you know, looking back at that, you know, those, those were the times for me that are, that are the, the really important ones. Chris, did you have a moment? Um, I don't think so. Um, I'll tell you why. First of all, I was very aware that in the music business, you're as good as your last record. Yeah, sure. So you just got to keep climbing, keep going. It's just a constant thing. But obviously, I was, I mean, there's a thing where you are aware that it is kind of building and building. But I was very lucky to work with so many sort of well known artists and established artists. I was very careful about that sort of might be going, that going to my head. And uh, and so I always just considered the fact that, well, it's just the job. I mean, the great thing was that I was doing the job that I wanted to do so much in the world, yeah. you know, more than anything else in the world. And so it was just that thing of like, it's my job. So I, I tried to keep uh, a little bit separate from it in that way. Although I do, having Timmy here reminded me of one thing, and that was when uh, Need You Tonight got to number one, I think, yes. in the States. That, that was a big moment. And he me. phoned me up. Mm. which is fantastic. He said, hey, Chris, he said, the record's got number one. It was like, fantastic. wow. You know, mm. and within a couple of minutes, it's like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like that, isn't it? It's like that. Yeah. But it must have been interesting for you too, like working with the Sex Pistols because what Never I mean, felt that was going to be. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I can understand why, but uh, uh, but I mean, from a, from your point of view, what intrigued you about working with them, you know? like Well, 
I'd known Malcolm for about a year oh, okay. or so, uh, so that's how I got roped into that. Also, I knew Chris Spedding, who was really uh, he he was I was actually as a kind of busman's holiday. I was playing keyboards on the John Cale band. Right, um, John Cale from Velvet Underground, and Chris was the guitarist. And Chris was the mm. the only real musician in England who was actually championing them. You oh. know, because everybody else is saying like they can't play and then well, pile of shit. Well, they were putting shit on every other musician. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> so um, so there was a kind of uh, you know I was sort of in and around that stuff, and the, and the scene in London was very very small in those days. A lot of people sort of knew each other. Right. Um, so I got dragged in. I, I got asked to do something when they, they first tried to do Anarchy, it didn't work out. And they came over to my place, to my house, minus John. Malcolm decided not to invite John, and that was just the beginning of Malcolm's manipulation and winding up of John, which was, you know, a dumbest sort of thing that was going on at the time. But they brought me some demos. And the most important thing is, for instance, there was a demo of Pretty Vacant. And right. it's like, wow, you know, like, mm. what a great riff, you know. Yeah. It's like, that's it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sold. And one that's of the things true. I thought about as well, coming from West, because I was brought up in West London, um, was that I thought, well, this is like, like the who, you know, sort mm. of like 10 years down the line, you know, singer, a guitarist, bass player, and a drummer. So I thought maybe this could be a next generation, kind of real great London, West London rock band like the who cool. became. And mm. so that was, that's why I, I didn't actually like the publicity side of everything. I've, I was, that really didn't have, because I thought it might actually be counterproductive. Right. You know, and in fact, at one point, it certainly was because we were getting dumped off labels. You couldn't get yeah. the bloody record out. So it was, that was very frustrating. But the main thing was that I, I did think that I could do something with, with the material. If I hadn't liked the stuff, I wouldn't have done it. You know. Gotcha. Brett, was there a moment for you when you, you looked around, you're out in the ground, you're, you're bowling, you're at the top of your mark? There was probably two moments. Uh, the first was 17 playing for um, Campbelltown Cricket Club. Shane was the, the captain of the side. The second innings where I got the new ball. So Shane always got downwind, brand new ball, and I was first change. I'll we'll bowl from the other end, yeah. being the older brother. And this day he said, oh, you're bowling pretty quick in the nets. Here you go. You can take the choice of ends, brand new ball. And that moment I thought, I've actually gone past my older brother because he was always quicker than me growing up. And then I got that chance to bowl downwind. And even though you probably don't remember it, but it, it, no, it meant a lot it. in my It's bloody hard in, in my career. That day. <laughs> but I think probably the the main part was, I think it was 2005, and I, I bowled I bowled 160 Ks in the World Cup 2003, but 161 Ks in 2005. And I just felt, on top of my game, I felt really, really fit. Uh, so... To win a World Cup was fantastic, but yeah, to achieve that, going mm. past that 160 barrier again, that to me was like a huge moment. And that's what I felt like, you know, all that training, all that hard work, all that dedication, you know, the, the moments after school, in, you know, the hours in the nets, the um, the setbacks, the broken back twice, the, the six ankle operations, the, wow. the two elbow operations, to bowl 161 Ks, that was like, yeah, this, this feels pretty is good. That, is that one of the things you're most proud of is that the fact that all those setbacks you kept coming back and you didn't, never gave up my, my most proudest thing about sport sort of cricket in particular was to bowl 150 k's for 20 years mm. 
Yeah. So it's not some achievement. You know, it wasn't. Um, when you're doing longer than that, you're doing it in the backyard when you're about seven, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever bob beamers at your brothers? A couple of times. <laughs> Never on purpose, of course. <laughs> uh, no, but that that was you know, and people talk about wickets, they talk about World Cups, and that's all great. But to me, it was the actual longevity of bowling. Mm. So it's such a hard thing. To, it's the hardest part of the game, in, you know, mm. you know, in cricket to bowl consistently over 150 k. So. It was the last big bash season. I did it for 19 years and I had to get past that 150 barrier. And that was the goal I set because I think a journey came up with it and sort of went back and looked at every single year and said, you know that you're one year away from 20 years of cricket bowling 150 Ks? No, wow. I wasn't aware of that. Wow. And then I bowled 148 Ks in the previous game and that was it. And we had two games to go. So I had to go. <laughs> wow. I almost bloody killed myself doing it, but I ticked it off, I thought. That's so that, to me, that was really, really good because you had to be on top of your game. You had to be the fittest. And yeah, it's, it's not about wickets to me. It's not about World Cups. That was like I had to put myself into that position of being the fittest and stay on top, top, on, on top of my game. And it was me against me. Playing an Ashes series must have been pretty special though. Yeah, that was really good. That was uh, 2001. Look, if I knew what I, you know, that old, that old saying, if I knew what I, what I know now yeah. back in 2001, because I got caught up in the whole Barmy Army 2001 and they kept sort of wanting me to bowl quicker and I bowl, try to bowl faster, which you generally bowl slower. Uh, and then like you bowl shorter, yeah. you bowl wider, you get pumped. And 2001 was a good series for me, but it was one where I could have totally changed it around. 2005 was a lot better because I learnt from... 2001, but playing against the Poms, that was, uh, mm. it, it's the, the Barmy Army are brilliant. Yeah, I think so too. And I got, I remember the time in Melbourne, <clears throat> Boxing Day Test in Melbourne, and this little guy who was in charge of the Barmy Army, and he kept sledging me, Bay 13. <laughs> I thought, you little prick, right? <laughs> and he kept going at me the whole day, and I hadn't got a wicket. And I was walking back, so we had a feed at the casino. We walked back past South Bank where we were staying, and they were all in the pub, and they're going off. And they, these guys have been drinking all day for the last three days. I'm going to get to bed at a reasonable hour, and I've looked, and I've seen this the Barmy Army, and I see this little guy, and I've walked straight up to him, and he said I was going to punch him out. <laughs> and I said, what are you drinking? And he asked for a stout or asked some type of beer. And I bought him and I said, mate, thank you so much. I know we have some fun on and off the field. Love what you guys do for the game. Well, then the next day, the Barmy Army were all like, hey, every time I went down, they bound down to me. So I won them over. It cost me a beer, which yeah, cost exactly. me four, five yeah. bucks for a beer. Yeah. One over the Barmy Army. <laughs> Fantastic. That reminds me, actually, uh, I was there the last day of the 2005 at the Oval. And yeah. something, and of course, I mean, everybody's giving everybody, you know, it's it's really sort of pumped <laughs> up and it looks like we're going to actually sort of like win the Ashes. But the most fantastic thing was once it sort of seemed inevitable that we, we that we got home, every time, for instance, McGrath went down to field at third man or fine leg, the whole place stood up and applauded yep. him. Yeah. You know, the wow. atmosphere was, I mean, I'm getting, I'm getting like yeah. goosebumps yeah. telling you this story yeah. so now. I, still I was it. so moved by mm. the fact that, like, there was mm. just so much respect for everybody. Uh, it was just something really quite sensational. Very, very knowledgeable, the um, English supporters, mm. across all sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So what, what, one thing we... And they're always in tune too, which helps. Mm. <laughs> Big time. One, one of the things you often do in sports, you, you compare man to man. Mm. Um, now, I just want to run a little, little exercise here okay. now, with two music experts at the table. Um, you mentioned before that you're only as good as your last album. Yeah. So 
according to that, six and out were pretty shit out. <laughs> <laughs> but but I thought I thought I'd just match up man for man. Yeah. In excess versus six and out, right? So I'm starting with the two older brothers, Tim and I, at the top. Right now, Tim plays guitar better, yeah. Chris, but let's not jump. Let's not award the jump to conclusion. Let's not that award to an excess just yet. So, so I'm saying it's we're, we're still in the game here, right? You, then you've got six and out going to yeah. win this, aren't they? No, he's got, he's got some it's a scheme. Yeah, and then you've got um, the next older brother, Brett and Andrew, right? Yeah. Two guys and the, and the two sort of you know real influential um, brothers in the family. Yeah. Um, so we're not quite out of the game yet. Then you've got Robbo, Gav Robertson, our drummer, yep. and John. Right. I sold him his drum kit. That's right. Sold him his wow. drum kit. Ro- Robbo used to cut his sleeves off like John did and also yeah. wear one glove. So, glove yeah. so he thought he okay. was John Farris. Okay. So I think sort of, <laughs> now this is where things go a little bit pear-shaped. Now it's, um, Kirk, and, we, and we also play Guns in the Sky yeah. as well. Oh, right. Kirk okay. Pangilly versus Brad McNamara. Well, it's fucking game over there. <laughs> <laughs> and then to finish off, we've got Michael versus yeah. Richard Cheekwee. <laughs> <laughs> so what score would you give us, mate? <laughs> well, it's sort of... It looked like a draw at one point, but I, sort of, I think you might have yeah. just sort of been edged yeah. out at the end. It was um, look, boys. I think we'll, uh, we'll, we'll oysters have been served now. We'll have a couple of drinks, but um, and, and we'll wrap it up. I just want to say thank you to the three of you. Um, I called you. You all said straight away, "Yep, Shane, love to come along." You didn't even balk at it. Um, you've all had big impacts on my life one, through one way or another, and you're all top blokes as well. Thanks, Shane, and I really appreciate. And um, so uh, that's the first. Session job lunch too, mate. with Lee, mate. Yeah, brained it. It'll go okay. Yeah. Yeah. Natural. Well, all, all very good, boys. Anyway, enjoy the meal, and um, we'll see you next time on lunch with Lee. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you, Cheers, boys. Cheers. That's it for lunch with Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Chris Thomas, Tim Farris, and Brett Lee. I'd also like to thank the Buena Vista Hotel for their fantastic lunch today. Go to the Buena Vista Hotel, seventy-six Middlehead Road, Mossman. Thank you to Hilton Headley for all your hard work behind the scenes. And a big thank you to our sponsors, The Gin Society and Spartan Sports. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And do us a favour, hit five stars. And if you're passionate, please leave a review. Next week, we'll be chatting to Charlie Teo, the world-renowned neurosurgeon, and Gavin Robertson, the former Australian cricketer, who Charlie has just operated on. See you then for another Cracker episode of Lunch with Lee. Summer.